developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Coming up on this week's show, forget the Apple Watch, bring on the Sega Watch. Some big Atari 50 updates. And we chat development from the Apple II to the Nintendo DS with Ed Magnin. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every single Friday with our incredible mates at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're thinking of Christmas presents for yourself, have you seen Go Straight, the ultimate guide to side-scrolling beat-em-ups, celebrating the history of that incredible genre going back over 40 years of bare-knuckle street fighting action? So if you're a fan of beat-em-up games, you need to check it out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 407, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for our weekly look at what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology. And of course, chatting to a veteran of the industry in the second half of the podcast. And it's actually quite nice today to sit down. I've got my big... Christmas cosy jumper on at the moment. Got the heating on in this room as well. Nice to have a break from just going out Christmas shopping and Christmas parties and all that that goes on this time of year. And you guys are sounding like you're both dying as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Well, it was my birthday yesterday, so um, I've had this rotten cold. Um, I'm sure you gave it to me virtually, Joe, down, down this Zoom or whatever. Just coughing down yeah. the mic. That's it. <laughs> what software have you been using? <laughs> yeah, I haven't got my antivirus software needs updating, I think. Um, but yeah, so we went out because it's my birthday for... Uh, a few drinks first ones in a while and uh, yeah i'm kind of paying the price a bit today don't drink if you've got the man flu i think is the uh, the lesson learned there which i'm sure i will not adhere to over the next few weeks but i mean it is great i mean this is actually our final normal show of the year isn't it because our christmas specials are coming up next couple yeah, of weeks it's, it's the one time of the year that we actually get a week off which yeah. is <laughs> amazing and that's usually over the new year's period but um first we have our christmas specials which we've actually pre-recorded but you know, no uh, you, you guys are going to find it really exciting because we're doing our Christmas quiz. Yeah. Um, and I'm hosting this time, which uh, I guarantee chaos on, on the Christmas quiz. <laughs> yeah, I haven't started editing it yet, but I'm uh, giving myself at least a week to do that. Yeah, so, good uh, luck. <laughs> let's talk a bit more about the quiz this year as well, then, because, I mean, this is in our retro hour tradition. This will be our seventh one that we worked out where, you know, we basically just have a bit of a giggle ask a load of questions, get a few teams together. We've all got secret weapons this year as well, and this was, I think it's the first time you and I, Joe, have actually been rivals in the quiz. Uh, yeah, because you're always either Quizmaster or on my team. Yeah. Um, you kicked so me off this year, time, though, didn't you? Yeah, well, I didn't <laughs> kick you off. You brought the uh, you brought your uh, secret weapon on. You brought Slopes on. Yeah. Uh, from Slopes Games, Game Room, DJ Slopes, who um, I was about to say something then, but I don't want to spoil it. Um, but yeah, you brought the Oracle on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like special guests, obviously we had Paul and Ollie on. Yeah, um, Paul from uh, Retro Gamer Magazine and Ollie as well, who does yeah, a, yeah. a huge video game quiz. Yeah, yeah and then um, I brought my mate Jason on from down the street. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I tell you. So Jason's one of my best friends who's a, a massive, massive, massive retro gamer enthusiast as well. And um, 
you know, who I go and do the cons with and, you know, sell games and stuff. He's the guy who's got the almost foot complete POW Mega Drive collection. Um, but spoilers, there was about four Mega Drive <laughs> questions in the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. I, I tried to uh, tune the questions up this year as well. So hopefully, you know, the audience will find it as enjoyable as we do. And it's always always a good laugh, isn't it? It's yeah. kind of like the pressure's off and you're just kind of doing a quiz, even though you guys take it so seriously that the pressure really ramps is, yeah. up for the host. Yeah. So you'll find out in the next couple of weeks who's going to be crowned the Retro Hour Super Quiz Champion of 2023. And of course, you can play along at home as well. Uh, that's coming out uh, two weeks today. But next week, we're going to be doing our, uh, our look back on the year as well, because I think, you know, 2023 has been a really interesting year, not only in retro tech gaming but also the amount of guests we've had on this podcast and the variety as well so we're going to be doing our special look back episode next week and then the christmas quiz will land there on the friday before christmas but before that we have got a a normal show to talk about this week and i'm going to be bringing up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology in a moment and an incredible interview that you've done this week ravi yeah, so um, I chatted with Ed Magnin, and Ed is uh, such an awesome developer. You know, he's been kind of working from 1979, and uh, he's developed all the way till present day. Um, some of his stuff is, is is really interesting. So he's worked for companies like Cinemaware, um, Microprose, Virgin Games as well, um, all huge companies. And he kind of specializes in hardware and, uh, you know, programming and the porting. He, like, he ran this... Um, amazing it was kind of an online service but you know back in the days uh back in 1979 and it was called telephone software connection that's crazy so, early uh you know people would be downloading from this system and also doing credit card payments back then um and uh this was all done on early apple machines so mm. a lot of ed's kind of work in the early days was on the apple and apple 2 uh, porting cinema games like uh, you know rocket ranger uh, uh, free stooges as well so having that kind of cinemaware style going from you know the amiga that they developed it onto uh then into the apple apple 2gs and then later he was uh working at microprose on uh titles like pirates as well which oh, uh, nice. is a, a huge one and also then he moved on to virgin games um moving on to the game boy uh, nintendo entertainment system as well but doing Really good ports like uh, Prince of Persia, which was just a, a fabulous port for the Game Boy. And then later on, he went on to uh, Game Boy Advance and uh, Game Boy Color. And we talk about, you know, the differences of working with Nintendo, their approval process, and how that differed from, you know, working with Apple and uh, kind yeah. of on the Apple II titles. Yeah, Nintendo's a <laughs> process very different to home micros, isn't it? And I love the fact you mentioned then that he was taking online credit card payments in the late 70s. I don't think my mum trusted putting her bank card information into a, a website until about two years ago. Oh, he's very pioneering with the stuff that he did. He even developed an app recently, which um, is one of the funniest apps I've heard about, which uh, you can play background sounds. So you can pretend that you're like on an airplane or in a hospital or something when you're ringing at work with an excuse. It's uh, called <laughs> calling sick. And I thought that was a genius idea as well. So looking forward to this one, our special guest, Ed Magnin. He's coming up on the show in around 35 minutes from now. But before we do that, we, of course, bring you up to speed on what's been happening. Another busy week in the world of retro, including some very big updates for the wonderful Atari 50 collection. Now, I've got, I don't think you guys have played the Atari 50 collection yet, have you? No. Um, I, I, this is going to sound so strange. Like, I was 
I wanted to get it. I probably will get it because I think it's only about 25 quid now. Yeah. But I was disappointed that there's only a handful of Jaguar games on there. Is that why <laughs> like, you wanted it for the Jaguar? Right? I wanted it for more Jaguar games. Like, I think I would have been all over it if um, Alien vs. Predator was on there. But I think yeah. you get um, Atari carts and a couple of others. But you get loads of 2,600 games and 5,200 games and stuff like that, which, as we've said before, is probably a little bit before most of our times, to mm. be honest. But it is the gift that keeps on giving. And you have said to me, Dan, that the presentation on Atari 50 is fantastic. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's obviously from Digital Eclipse, who I believe Atari actually bought them, didn't they, a while back? So they're part of Atari now. But yeah, I mean, really what it is, I mean, the reason I wanted it and I actually got it for Christmas last year, actually, um, is because it's really more like a, a documentary as well. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's more like preserving the artwork and the stories behind the games. So really, it's kind of like an interactive documentary. You hear some of the developers talking about the, the development process and then you can play the game itself. So um, the big news is, though, that obviously this came out around a year ago now, but this week, Digital Eclipse have added 12 more classic Atari games as a free holiday content update pack, which uh, I didn't see this one coming. I thought, you know, it's incredible that they're basically a year later just pumping out free content for it. You know, it's not not payable DLC or anything like that. Yeah, no, it's really cool that. And, uh, you know, the, the majority of them are 2,600 games again. Yeah. Um, but, you know, completely free. You don't, you don't have to pay for it or anything like that. It's out now as well. Like, you know, it wasn't like, oh, it's coming next week or anything. They just announced it's out. It's there. The update is is here kind of thing. It's good to see because I've seen like, you know, a lot of these old releases of like Atari classic packs and stuff like that come out for systems and then kind of just be left and mm. not updated. And having this whole like holiday content update is uh, is quite welcome. Yeah, I mean, you know, I won't spend too long on the games list. You know, you can obviously find it, you know, if you've got the update, you'll know. If not, you can Google it pretty quickly. But yeah, there's a couple of homebrew ones on there. You've got Adventure 2 for the uh, 2600. There's one called uh, Aqua Venture as well, which is a prototype. Uh, Save Mary, which is another prototype. Uh, and these are prototypes that you know, have been, I think, kind of circulating on the web for a while. But it's nice to have them in a you know somewhat official package. And then you've you got a bunch of other uh, 2600 games. And there is one... Atari Lynx game as well called Warbirds. So I do think it's a very nice update. And um, you mentioned then, Joe, about, you know, you like more Jaguar content on there. They have said, though, this is not all. They are going to be releasing more regular updates for it as well okay. as we go forward. So it looks like, you know, definitely is worth, you know, you pay once and you're getting a load of games as they can make them yeah, available, which I think yeah, is very really cool. Good. So, yeah, and, so uh, that's available now. Atari seem to be doing, like, you know, some really cool stuff recently. And, um, Hopefully next year we're going to have uh, um, maybe somebody from Atari. Yeah, which um, I think it's about time we uh, spoke to someone from. Yeah, because I think you're right. The, the, the direction the company's going in now does seem, you know, like really clued up now, doesn't it, in terms of, you know, attracting retro fans. So, uh, yeah, watch this space. And uh, that update is available now. And speaking of Atari, actually, uh, something else from the Atari stable, because uh, this is our mates at Night Dive Studios. And you may have seen this. I've been uh, watching a few YouTube reviews of this. I've not played it or bought it myself just yet, but definitely one on the uh, maybe contender list, you know, for games that I might download over the Christmas break. <laughs> Turok 3 has had a rather nice looking remaster. Yeah. So like you say, from Night Dive Studios and Atari, um, released earlier this week um, on PC, PlayStation, Xbox, and Switch, which is cool and makes sense because if it was an N64 game, um, a really late N64 game came out in 2000. I think the GameCube was 2001, so pretty late into the, uh, to the N64's lifespan. I was a big fan of Torok, but I never played number three. I had number one and two, 
mm. and played them to death. And I had Rage Wars as well, which was like the uh, deathmatch kind of like one. They had like arena mode one they released as well. Um, but I never played Torok 3. And I, I'm the same as you. I've watched quite a few reviews on this. And to be fair, it's been nothing but praise. Yeah. Um, you know, it's Night Dive. You know, they usually hit home runs with these things. Um, it's, you know, 4K native, 4K native resolution and 120 frames per second on all consoles and PC, which is really nice to see. Obviously touched up the graphics and everything there and... But one thing I like about that is... Modernise the controls. You know, they haven't gone too far with the graphic upgrades, though. No. I mean, it still looks quite similar to the original, just like you said, kind of upscaled and looks, you know, smoother yeah. on modern displays. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and they did number one and two as well back in, like, 2015, 2016. They did, yeah. you know, those ones as well. Um, so I, I really need to check this one out. I think it's about, I want to say it's about 25 quid, I think I saw it for. I've put it on my wish list on Xbox. Um, but as always, Night Dive, they just... They're just pumping them out now, aren't they? You know, yeah. like every couple of weeks, there's a new one. Um, and like I say, they're always home run, home runs. You know, they've been really, really, really solid games that they're putting out and sometimes shedding a bit of life or light onto games that might have been overlooked because nobody ever really talks about Torque 3. Everybody always, always talks about Torque 1 and Torque 2. Mm. Um, and Torque 3, you know, I think may, mostly scored like 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10 you know, 77 on Metacritic. So, you know, not the not amazing, but, you know, certainly not a bad game. I'm seeing a lot of reviewers coming back to this or playing it for the first time. They're like, actually, this is probably the best of the three. You know, you get two characters you can play as and essentially two campaigns because they both get different weapons and they both take different routes on the levels and stuff like that. Um, and also the campaign is only about three hours long per character. So nice and short for people like, for like me and Dan, who have yeah. never got any time. <laughs> it's, it's a series that passed me by, and mm. uh, I think this might be a, a really good way to experience it. Do, do you recommend it, Joe? I recommend it. Um, Turok 1 is, a, I would say, is a little bit dated, because Turok 1, there isn't as much of a story, and it's very, every level is very, go collect this item and then get to the end of the level. Um, whereas Turok 2 and Turok 3, they're a little bit more kind of like, some people might scream at me for this, but they're a little bit more like Half-Life-y. There's kind of like, there's a narrative to it and there's a lot more weapons and gore and a lot more like variety in the enemies and stuff. So, you know, dinosaurs and then kind of like humans and then weird alien kind of dinosaur hybrids and stuff. So I would recommend them. Yeah, no, for me as well, like Turok was kind of one of the games that I remember just the promotional campaign for that game was massive. Every time I opened, even non-gaming magazines, you know, by yeah, like yeah, I remember Mag the magazine and DJ Mag, like, they'd have like those adverts in there, you know, with a dinosaur head. And yeah, I remember uh, the screenshots were absolutely everywhere. Mm. Yeah, so a really interesting franchise. And I think, yeah, like you said, I've not played the third game, but it's uh, interesting that apparently it kind of concludes a story that they set up in the second game as well. So yeah, if you've yeah, only yeah. played that one, it's worth, you know, just to, go, to get some completion, um, downloading that, and uh, like you said, available for uh, all the modern systems now. So uh, I'll link that up. And obviously Night Dive, I think you're right, they just seem to be like the go-to guys for like these fantastic remasters at the moment. Mm. Obviously we had that, you know, Quake 1 and 2 they did recently as well, which were really well done. So look forward to seeing more of what Night Dive will bring us in 2024. Now, uh, this is very cool. I love it when we get new games for retro systems and uh, this looks right of your street joe a new run and gunner game it's <laughs> hard to say a new run and gunner game for the uh, not only the dreamcast also the psp and the neo geo yeah Cy cyborg force um which is looking to release in uh mid 2024 
um, coming to physical uh, cartridges, etc., discs, uh, which is really awesome. But yeah, very in the vein of kind of like somewhere in between Contra and and uh, Metal Slug, I would say, um, in terms of gameplay. Um, Cyborg Force, kind of in the name, it's post post apocalyptic future. Uh, nuclear war <laughs> you know yeah, the world's we've heard been that destroyed <laughs> we've heard that once or twice before and it's been uh, developed by a company called uh, Neo Byte which i believe this is their first ever commercial video game oh wow that they've done um historically they've done they've like developed board games um but there's a few names behind this you know who have been involved in other games and stuff like that you know have come together to work for Neo Byte and um it's it's natively being made for Neo Geo uh, for the AES and MVS, um, but as you say, it's coming on Dreamcast, PSP, and PC as well as other emulation devices and you know physical release as well. Yeah, uh, looking at the uh, at the pricing, I know Neo Geo. Yeah, games are always always uh, seen as expensive. This yeah. is a uh, three hundred and thirty three pounds, yeah. and uh, you know they've got they've got the obviously the custom cartridge there which is uh, going to cost a lot as well. And they've got the, uh, it's kind of like a VHS yeah. style um, tape that they release it in. And they've got um, two region choices as well. Even though the game is region free, um, they've got like a US version and a Japanese version as well. And a 123 meg cartridge. Yeah, I think the fact that they're doing it natively, uh, you know, yeah, Neo Geo collecting is expensive. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I'm going to really say on yeah, that. The, yeah. the knee, I, I often joke to my wife because I like collecting for the Sega Saturn. And I always say like, oh God, the Sega Saturn's like the most expensive console to collect for. Like, what am I doing to myself? But no, you, you kind of forget about the Neo Geo and stuff where games are, you know, they're like three, four, five hundred pounds. And all of the, the new releases that come out for them are like, 300 euros 333 quid yeah. stuff like that and it's very much for the hardcore isn't it yeah absolutely yeah. but if you don't fancy that and you do just want to buy the rom on a on a stick um 37 and a half 37 you see 50. that yeah yeah that's good yeah, yeah so they, they've got the options you know? <laughs> yeah so a little bit more affordable but yeah it does look cool um interestingly it's only two player on the neo geo so if you buy the dreamcast or psp version it's only one player if you get the Neo Geo versions, it's two player. Right. And, I, and I, I find that a bit of an odd choice personally. I also think that, you know, they're obviously going for a limited market here. Like, and yeah. if, if they had a lot more of these, they'd probably be able to reduce the price, but you know, they're going to be yeah, hitting these at a very small print amount. I can't imagine, imagine they're going to be making thousands of these. I imagine no. they'll probably make a couple of hundred of the Neo Geo ones, but yeah, the two player thing kind of threw me off a little bit because these games they are historically fantastic two-player games. You know? Yeah, much more fun. Yeah, much, much, much more fun. Um, so I don't know if that's a kind of like a uh, a conscious choice to try and make people buy the Neo Geo one, or if it's just they couldn't get it to run two-player. I don't know. I mean, graphically, it doesn't look like it would challenge the Dreamcast at all, to be honest. You know, it's very 16-bit looking, so... Uh, interesting choice. If that is their reasoning, then that's very ambitious, isn't it? Yeah, we're gonna go. Yeah. People will definitely go out and buy a Neo Geo and spend yeah, yeah. three hundred and fifty euros on a on a card to play two player mode and pay that for a Neo Geo. As yeah, well. exactly. So I think you're right there. Yeah, because I mean, we have a few Neo Geo collectors that come on the patrons hangout regularly, and they're all used to paying 
those kind of mm-hmm. prices for mm-hmm. Neo Geo. I mean, they're essentially arcades, aren't they? Really? Do you? I think you have a Neo Geo, don't you? I've got a Neo Geo CD system, oh, which, okay, um, yeah. I mean, it which plays is still it. expensive. I've never yeah. even seen it. You know, Dan's got so many <laughs> odd machines. I'm like, oh, you've got a Neo Geo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those where it's generally among the Neo Geo community regarded as kind of the worst one to own in terms oh. of, you know, because you've got the loading times off a of mm-hmm. CD. Um, yeah. Which I don't think is too bad though, because I mean, I'm you know I'm used to stuff like the you know the the Mega CD and the you know CD32 and stuff like that, which CDI. I don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't I don't mind CD loading times if I'm honest, but uh, I think people that are used to the games being kind of from cartridge and instantly playable, yeah. it does kind of bug them a bit. But uh, yeah, in terms of actually an original Neo Geo machine, the CD one's probably the most affordable from what I've seen. I mean, I got a really good deal on it about must be about three years ago now. I got it for about eighty pounds with oh, that's the controller. Really good deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Off, off a friend. So it was, yeah. Um, yeah, and you can burn the discs as well, you know, download the images off the mm. internet. There's no protection. So, yeah, but I mean, I imagine emulation is probably the way to go for most people if you haven't got the original hardware. Interesting platforms are picked as well, the PSP and Dreamcast. It seems a bit random. At first I was like, is there something in common with these systems that makes that port easy? But from what I've seen, it doesn't look like it. It just seems I like... Yeah. You I, guess, I guess there's that kind of built-in market of... Uh, Dreamcast titles, you know, yeah. recently coming out, and PSP. I can imagine there's a, uh, you know, some similar titles, and and maybe maybe they might be able to port across quite easily. I'm not sure. I got a PSP not long ago, actually, so it's nice to see some new games coming out on it. So uh, yeah, we're keeping an eye on that one. So uh, if you want to check out when that's going to be available, I'll put the link in the show notes. Now, you guys are uh, sporting anything on your wrists at the moment? <laughs> not this. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've, got, I've got a Casio uh, G-Shock. Uh, nice. I, think, I think, is it Casio? I've, I've got a G-Shock anyway, one of those old school ones, you know, but uh, I've got the, the new version. It, that, not the ones um, you could win at the fun fair on the uh, No, the no uh, I've got the new version. It, 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 it runs off solar anyway, but I oh, think cool. the only difference with the new version is it's got a blue light instead of a, a green one on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got my Apple Watch on, which obviously, you know, nags me all throughout the day, like, stand up, do more exercise, you haven't finished your step counter, my little uh, nagging assistant on my wrist. Um, however, I'm going to say these look pretty nice although uh, again something else that is quite expensive i think joe's been doing a bit of lusting over <laughs> things that are far out of our price range this week um but these are sega mega drive watches that are going to cost an eye-watering 800 dollars each yeah these these uh i've just written this off i'm not a watch guy to be honest like my dad's big into watches and stuff but I, I literally have one watch which I wore on my wedding day and it was like a 30 quid, like nice leather strap one. Um, What's the thing but, with watches now? They're either, you know, if, if they're a smart watch, I get the the use for them. Yeah. They're either that or they're more like a fashion accessory these days, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've not got a smart watch. My wife does. She has the Fitbit one. Mm. Um, and to be fair, she used to swear by it. She don't wear it so much. I will tell you why I've got a solar one because my smart one. I was sick of charging it all the time or yeah. losing oh, a charge go. on it. You know? There you go. Look at that. But yeah, if you fancy uh, a new watch and you're a big Mega Drive or Genesis fan, um, watchmaker Anicorn are launching a range of uh, $800 Sega Mega Drive Genesis console-based watches. They're, and- they're a weird design. Like so. Mm. I remember, um, you might remember this, when Batman the movie came out, there was these like little plastic ones you get at Argos that had Batman on the front, like his face with the pointy ears. And then you'd lift up Batman and it'd have like a little LED. Yes, I do remember those. Yeah, and it kind of <laughs> reminds me of the front of the Batman one. But the way that they've designed it, like there's the um, Japanese limited edition one. Yeah. It's got a little window where you can see the numbers, which 
I kind of find weird on a watch anyway, but it looks a bit like a rumba to me. So it's designed, <laughs> it's designed. So think of the Mega Drive Model One, the circular bit where the cartridge goes. That's that's what it is. It's a it's designed over after that. It's a remake of that. But yeah, but just see the kind of robot vacuum. Yes, yeah, I see it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I see it absolutely. But yeah, I mean, interestingly, you pointed out there. Yeah, you can get the Japanese version. So it comes with the kind of maroon, purpley red. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, design with it obviously they're all black but then and then you can get the genesis or you can get the european mega drive version and, one and of course it looks like it's made out of you know really high quality stuff and like on the back and it's all brushed steel and all of this kind of yeah. um uh, stuff so you know yeah if, you, if you're into watches and you watch yeah. collecting i know there's a lot of people and you're into gaming uh it might be something that um someone with a, a lot of spare cash can rock you know yeah absolutely but um yeah i mean like I say, probably not for me. Bit rich. <laughs> well, I, said, I mean, it's obviously a luxury. Yeah, brand watchmaker company, isn't it? Anicorn. There, you know, they're selling these for a lot of money, eight hundred dollars each. But I think the design of them is beautiful. I mean, in particular, the the Japanese Mega Drive one. I'm looking at that, and like you said, it's you know, it's kind of a flat version, isn't it, of the disc that's on the top of the uh, the Mega Drive? And it even, yeah. I mean, the attention to detail, the power light lights up as well. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So you know. I don't know if you. <laughs> it just means it's got battery. Might get a bit annoying at night, you know, when it's on your nightstand. That kind of little glowing yeah, red light constantly. Yeah, I don't know. maybe. Yeah, maybe. I'm looking now. They're still in stock. Yeah. <laughs> so if you fancy one, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I like the Japanese one as well. I do. I quite like of the three. I think that's my favourite looking one as well. Yeah. So I mean, there is also quite a weird looking Mega Drive one that's just like a transparent watch it be oh is that the back of it i'm looking at here that's the back of it yeah, yeah. okay yeah so the back of it is transparent yeah, also yeah. the case looks quite nice as well um you know they've they've themed it and they've kind of got the uh embossed um like logo on the front and um the grid that they'd have on some of the mega drive titles as well and like the little the the book of for it looks a bit like a games manual yeah um yeah, it, it looks like a nice package and stuff. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. But again, if I did have one of these, that's exactly where it would stay in the case. I'd be t- that's one reason I'm not like a watch collector, apart from not having eight hundred dollars to splash out on watches. I'd be too nervous walking around with that kind of money. I'd just be like wrist. a new car, yeah, or a Mega Drive watch. <laughs> yeah. I'd be scraping it on walls and like, yeah, I'm too clumsy. But yeah, if you are a watch collector and you want something very unique and uh, something looks very beautiful, actually, and a Sega fan, this could be right up your alley. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Now um, we've had a lot of new consoles come out. You know, the mini console. Craze kind of continues. Obviously, we saw Retro Games Limited announcing their roadmap for 2024. Plenty of new systems on the way from them. This one is a little bit left of centre, though. Now, first of all, I had to kind of be reminded that uh, Commodore is still a thing. Now, obviously, this is not the Commodore of old. I mean, I'm, I know you've done videos about this, Ravi, um, kind of what happened to the the name and the amount of companies and stuff it's been through over the years. It's a complicated story, isn't it? Yeah, it's been uh, kind of passed around a lot. And um, I think I think there's probably four companies or three companies that are currently Commodore. So um, I know that you've got uh, Commodore Italy, which we're talking about at the moment. There was a Commodore USA mm. as well. Um, individual computers, I think, have the brand Commodore in um, in Germany. I'm not quite accurate with it. I can't keep up with the amount of uh, Commodores <laughs> that are around or have kind of used the brand recently. Well, you mentioned about um, vacuum cleaners as well. I saw someone put this in our Discord a while back, that there is a company that make basically Commodore-branded Roomba clones. 
So they're like, you know, robot hoovers with the Commodore logo on top, which is quite interesting to see. But, but this company we're talking about here, this is the Italian Commodore company, who you might remember they made the headlines a couple of years ago when they brought out the, the pet phone. Ah, uh, yes, yes, they did. They did some uh, Commodore-themed phones, which is kind of like an Android phone with yeah. uh, an etching of, of the logos on the back, I think. I think someone found out, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I've got a feeling it was just kind of an off-the-shelf Chinese Android phone that they kind of put their logo on from yeah. memory. Yeah, and obviously, that was a few years ago now. But this company is still kicking, and if you go on their website, they do have quite a few products available. You know, I think, again, these are probably kind of OEM um, yeah, I, lap- think, I think they're referred to as Commodore Industries, this company. Right, so. yeah. Well, that I mean, they've got a lot of laptops and stuff on their website, you know, just standard Windows machines. But interestingly, they've been at a convention recently. These are an Italian company, and um, they've been going to a few trade shows and stuff, including the uh, Milan Games Week event that was on recently. And they're basically trying to, you know, revive Commodore and get the brand back in the limelight as well. And there's an interview on a Italian news website where they're talking about the fact that the... Um, the guys behind this company, uh, Luigi Simonetti uh, of Commodore Italy, now wants to make a console. So we could be getting a Commodore console. Yeah, in the near I think future. we've seen so many Commodore consoles. Um, I, I remember Audi did one at one point in Germany. Uh, there was wow. a C64 Audi release. There was a, yeah, that Commodore USA did one. We've also mm-hmm. seen, obviously, Retro Games Limited have done their Commodore branded um, uh, the C64 Mini. And, uh, yeah, I, I guess it depends what they're going to go for. Are they going to go for kind of just a, a, a kind of like little mini system or are they going to go for uh, slapping something on an Android thing or are they going to go for a full kind of Amiga-style system? Who knows? It's a interesting interview, but it, it seems like they're kind of aiming to uh, hit that market, especially doing this interview and it's some of their products. like They've got like a little C64 floppy drive um USB key that seems to be sold out at the moment. Right. And uh, they've got a few little games that they're kind of uh, been been running as well, but um, none of them really seem like they're, they're huge kind of retro Commodore style ones. So um, I'm, I'm not sure how they're going to approach this, but uh, I don't know. Do you think just slapping the name Commodore on something is, uh, <laughs> is going to bring enough people to it? Or do well, you think they the, need to do I mean, more? They say in this interview here, basically the only information we've got is their goal for the future is to have a console. Um, they're currently doing research and development, and the aim is to have a, a console with hardware inside that makes the Amiga world compatible. So oh, it looks okay. like whatever the planning oh, is going to be compatible I, I, with Amiga games. Yeah, I didn't see that quote. Okay, interesting, because uh, I know that Amiga kit also has that A600GS that they're just developing. So it's, it's good to see a world where, you know, there's so many options, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, for me, in my mind, Commodore and Amiga have been two completely different things for at least the last 30 years now, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that was that huge spit. I think it was a tulip computer um, bought the Commodore branding back in the days and then uh, Escom separated off for uh, the Amiga branding. Yeah, I mean, very, very messy in the late 90s and early 2000s as to kind of where the brands both went, you know, in separate ways. But that, I mean, one thing that I, I do like is, you know, it would be nice to see like a Commodore machine that can run Amiga games again. Obviously, we've got stuff like the A500 Mini and they're bringing out the, you know, the Maxi that everyone's kind of naming it next year as well. So it'll be interesting to see kind of where this fits in the market. But yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, think, I think it's a good situation. You know, for years we didn't have any 
no. Commodore or Amiga hardware, not even something with just a logo slapped on it. So, you know, uh, it's good to have so many about and uh, lots of options. Yeah, but um, uh, let's see what this becomes. Yeah, there's always space in my uh, console collection for a couple of new additions. So, uh, yeah, I'm we'll still give- after that Commodore Rumba anyway. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, not like me would probably <laughs> go for anything. Yeah. Our Santa Ravi be a good boy. You never know. Can I please get a Commodore number? <laughs> a what? So, uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. It could be uh, some interesting news in 2024 from the, the Commodore stable. So I'll link that up. And, of course, the rest of the stories we talk about, you can find them all every week on your podcast app or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now, we're going to get into this week's interview, talking about some incredible companies from back in the day. I've got Cinemaware, Microprose, Virgin as well, with Ed Magnin. He's coming up in just a moment. Before we do that, let's take a moment to give a massive thank you to our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, we love ExpressVPN. They've been such a big supporter of this podcast throughout 2023, haven't they? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, really good piece of software. I just love it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, obviously, ExpressVPN is our choice of VPN. And maybe right now, you know, if you're kind of looking at holiday presents, Christmas presents for your family. There is one thing that you'll find. I mean, I don't know about you guys. If I ever search for something or, you know, maybe looking for stuff to buy the missus, obviously that gets in your history and you find that you suddenly get ads recommending it all over, don't you? Your browser and everything like that. Yeah, obviously and it's usually recommending the thing that you've already bought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously, you know, if, if your missus comes in the room and you're on and there's adverts popping up, she kind of gets an idea or maybe your kids, you know, if you've got kids, you're shopping for them online. It might kind of give away what you're doing. So ExpressVPN is an app that you can have on your computer. You can have it on your phone as well. And it encrypts all of your online traffic. So no matter what you do, it all stays completely private. Because a lot of people think, you know, I'll do incognito mode, that'll save you. But incognito mode does nothing except hide your history from yourself. So if you haven't got ExpressVPN turned on, that's the thing, you know, your browsing history is out there, your ISP knows what you're doing, all these websites can track what you're doing too and serve your adverts up as well. And the good thing about ExpressVPN is you can take it on the road with you as well. So, you know, if you're at home, if you're traveling, if you're at work. Yeah, to- I, I find that really important because, yeah. you know, if, if you're on holiday or you're visiting family and friends and stuff and you're staying in like hotels and stuff with unsecure networks, it's uh, really important to kind of protect yourself and uh, ExpressVPN is really good for that. Yeah, and that's the thing. I'm going to uh, basically an Airbnb this weekend. I'm staying and, you know, we're going away to Buxton for a few days. And obviously I'm going to be using their Wi-Fi there as well. Yeah. You know, do, do you trust the people that run the Airbnb to respect your privacy? You know, get ExpressVPN on. They can't track anything. So we've been using it for many years now. And I think ExpressVPN has been supporting this podcast for about five years now. So uh, there's no way we'd let anyone else see our browsing history. You know, ExpressVPN encrypts it all. And uh, we want to give you an incredible Christmas offer. Now, maybe you're looking for a VPN at the moment. So many advantages to having one. Use our link. You're going to really help out the podcast. Not only sign up to a one-year plan, we'll give you three months extra for free. So use our link so they know that we sent you expressvpn.com slash retro. That's expressvpn.com slash retro. And thank you so much for ExpressVPN for their continued support of our show. Now, I don't know about you, lads. Obviously, uh, I've been self-employed for a while. I think you are as well, Ravi. I haven't got a Christmas party this year. I have next week. <laughs> are we going to Joe's for some kind of Christmas party? I think I'm crashing other people's Christmas 
<laughs> well, I thought, you know, if, if, if we can't go to a party, let's bring the party to us. And we do this every year, uh, the Retro Hour virtual Christmas party. Uh, obviously, we do our patrons hangout every month, but there is also something special about the December one, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to be doing the uh, the Christmas hangout on Friday the 15th, aren't we? Next week, yes. yes. Friday night we're doing it. Um, and we've done the patrons hangout on a Friday before. It always gets a little bit more rowdy, I think, than on a, <laughs> on a Sunday night, doesn't it? Because obviously, start of the weekend, like we said, everyone's in, you know, full-on Christmas merriment, you know, just kind of the week before Christmas. So, uh, you know, Christmas jumpers are not compulsory, but encouraged. We do like to see them. I, I the think last... it's the one with the most drinking on, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's what I was alluding to there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of people come on in their costume and you know, Christmas backgrounds and all that. And obviously we talk about our Christmas plans, a lot of memories and stuff too. It is all such a giggle. So if you haven't joined us for a hangout at all in 2023, this is a very good time to jump on and you'll get an invite to our virtual Christmas party that is coming up next Friday night, uh, Friday the 15th of December from 8pm UK time. So join us on Patreon now. You'll be invited to that. And of course, there are plenty of other perks for joining us on Patreon. You uh, often get the podcast early. You get it ad-free every week. We do an extra 10, 15 minutes of news stories on every episode just for our patrons. And if you join us as a gold member or above, you get invited to check out our bonus podcast, of which I think there are 38 episodes of this after we record next week's. Yeah, yeah the after hours, the retro hour after hours, where we just kind of let our hire down, let loose. Um, we, we kind of anything goes on the yeah. after hours, doesn't it? Um, you know, we usually have a theme. We do the retro years every couple of months where we kind of review, you know, games and tech from a particular year. You know, um, you know, we've covered quite a few of the 90s and 2000s, a couple of the 80s. Um, that's always really fun. Or often we kind of, sometimes people want to hear a little bit more about us. So we kind of give our opinions, you know, top fives of certain consoles and games. Yeah, so, sometimes they recommend games for us to play as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, I love it when we do that. We need to do we that. We need to do, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and yeah, we need yeah. to get some more patrons on the news as well. Bryce, uh, we will get you on. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, if you want to check out the uh, the bonus podcast, a um, lot of listening there for, you know, if you've got a couple of weeks off over Christmas. Uh, next week, we're going to be doing our Christmas special of that as well, talking about Christmas memories and gaming and tech that reminds us of Christmas has gone by. So you get, get an invite to that, your uh, own personal RSS link. A very good time to join us on Patreon and uh, make sure that we can continue the podcast into 2024. All the details to sign up are on our website right now at theretrohour.com. And I just want to say to the patrons, thanks so much for supporting us throughout the year as well yeah. it's, it's it's been fantastic and we know it's a tough time but uh yeah you know well, you've allowed us to to keep the show going and uh we really appreciate it yeah we couldn't have done it without you right then of course you can check out uh, all the news stories in the show notes every week you don't have to google around to save you the job a little favor to ask as well if you have got a little bit of time over christmas we do appreciate that you know people have a little bit of holidays you can probably spend it with the family but if you get a couple of seconds one thing that's going to really help us as we go into 2024 is leave us a little review if you can on the platform that you listen on particularly you know, if you listen on apple Podcasts, really helps us get in front of new people helps us get up the charts as well and uh, warms our hearts to see lovely comments on there as well doesn't it so we'd really appreciate it if you can just take a couple of seconds to leave us a nice review and a five star a little rating on there that always really helps Right then, so we'll see you for our Christmas specials next Friday, kicking off with the best of 2023, and then, of course, the uh, the Christmas quiz. I can hear a few uh, nerves when I mention <laughs> that. I won't give any spoilers. So, uh, yeah, look forward to that, and uh, enjoy the start of your Christmas season if you are celebrating that this year. And next, we're going to talk to this week's special guest, getting the inside story on companies like Cinemaware, Microprose Virgin as well, with Ed Magnin. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. 
When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and we're here today with Ed Magnin. And we're going to be talking about so many different things, kind of going from 1979 to, uh, you know, the Game Boy Advance and Nintendo DS as well. So there's a, a whole great history there of working at great companies like Cinemaware, Microprose as well, and uh, Virgin Games. How are you doing, Ed? Oh, great. Great. I appreciate your call. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's great to have you on. Now, we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and this kind of, you know, takes them back a bit. And this is, uh, what was your first kind of video game or computer experience that you can remember? Well, I had done the online business where we were, um, I, w- I was on the Apple II. I bought it as a hobby when I was teaching and I, and I go to club meetings in Los Angeles. Uh, the, the, there was like an Apple club. Jobs and Wozniak would fly down <laughs> from, the, from the Bay Area to, to come and talk to us once in a while. And, and I was looking at, oh, they showed off the Lisa, the, the Apple III that was their Edsel, you know, their, their, their one big terrible machine, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, I got to see them. And then I looked at the club when I go to this club meetings on the weekend and, you know, once a month. And, and I looked around the room and people were starting businesses. And I said, well, I'm, I'm as good or better than those guys are. Why don't I? So I went around and tried to sell some software to some companies and they didn't offer me very much. So then I said, well, the hell with that. I'll figure out how to do it myself. And I developed an online business that people downloaded through modems, which were only if I say they were 300 baud, which <laughs> yeah. is, that's, okay, 56K, this is 0.3K, I both, yeah, uh, yeah, point, so, <laughs> it was like, it wasn't even, it wasn't even in the ballpark of, of any kind of dial-up that we use. So but, how, how did it work then? Because that was in like 1979 then, and. Um, right, exactly. So what happened was, I went to the UCLA library, and I got some reference books on X25, X.25, which was the the network that that Telenet and TimeNet used as dial-up networks. Yeah. And it had error checking in it. And uh, so you could send a, if you couldn't send it reliably, I'm not going to send you an eight-minute download and then have you complain that you didn't get a good transfer, you know. Uh, So I've had to know that I was sending it reliably. So we sent blocks of data, like packets of like 256 bytes with a two-byte checksum. And if the checksum matched, it continued to go forward and if it didn't match it repeated the last block and and so we knew when we sent you the thing it was reliable now then how do we get your money we charge your credit card and we say okay this game is 25 dollars, and you give us your credit card now we establish an account for you earlier on a you'd leave your information and we set up account and then we'd know how to get a hold of you you know if there was a problem but basically we're trusting you and then as far as submitting them for payment they weren't set up to let us do it electronically, so we would print them out on paper and take them to the bank, and they they said telephone order, where the signature would go. So you essentially had like a, a kind of software delivery service, but it, you also had submissions to it. And um, what, yeah, what- we, we took games from other people. We did a lot of them ourselves. 
but we had about maybe I, I don't know I, one of the brochures I have online I think had the number, but it was, it was like maybe 60, 70 uh, titles. They weren't all games. There were some games. And, you know, Apple came out with a mouse, which was kind of funny. I think it was a one-button mouse. And we had a mouse maze where you where you moved the mouse around. So not that many people had the mouse, but the people that bought the mouse, we gave them a game they could play on it. And uh, we did a telegammon where you could play backgammon over the phone. We did a chess one where you could play chess over the phone with somebody else. And what it did was you bought the game. The game sent enough of itself to your friend, so he didn't even have to buy it. But he could play with you. Now, when when he wanted to play with somebody else, he needed his own copy to play with. And then it would send enough of the screen and everything so that when you made a move, it would move it on his side, too. That's insane. Like, you look at stuff now, like the App Store and how quick it is to, you know, download something and connect with your card. Oh, and believe me, I'm much happier not doing that. Okay, I I was (laughs) proud I invented a system that nobody... Nobody was even close to us. People filed patents on things that were several years late even. You know, uh, to shoot down their patent, you just have to have prior art that's a year and a day before them, you know. And, wow. and it was an international gift exchange. I worked with some of the top law firms around the world, including, I think, Rose Rose Law in London. <laughs> Everybody that, that needed help fighting these patents because people had patented them. And the British ones trailed by a couple of years. So we were still, after I'd gotten all the money I could get for, for helping as an expert witness the U.S. cases, then I got hired to help with the British cases and stuff. And anyway, it was a it was an interesting thing. But I'm so glad now that I don't worry about it. I know I, I did it, and I could download stuff, and I figured out how to do it. But now I'm glad that Apple and, and the Windows Store and Google Play and Amazon, you know, that they take care of that for me. And I, I used to run home on New Year's Eve because the system was actually running on Apple II's and it didn't have a, a day-date calendar and it had a it had a time we could set the time. But at the end of the year it had a switch, we had to switch it to like, <laughs> like 2024. You had to rush home on New Year's Eve to make sure you change the change so the year of <laughs> that, that's how you spent your midnight then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I spent my midnight doing that. And then was, people would call us, and there was a little bit of fraud, but but you know we'd catch the people because we wouldn't activate an account for them unless we had a working phone number. You know, if we, the guy leave his information, we call him. Out. So CBS News sent sent a crew out uh, to film. It was the first story they did on personal computers, and then they said Ed Magnan quit a teaching job in Southern California to do his own to provide his own computer games to other computer buffs around the world. And, and someone, and then what amazed them was, they said, just do what you normally would do. Well, in the evening, in the daytime, I used the computers because it costs too much for people to phone us in the daytime. In the evening, when the rates went down, uh, we leave all the lines answering for customers. And I was in the other room watching television. So I'm watching, I'm watching the CBS news in the other room while, while people are placing orders on, 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 the, on the thing. You know, it was, it was clicking back and forth and, and people would call up and they'd say they're Abraham Lincoln and stuff. And then once or twice it was embarrassing where it was a somebody famous that uh, you know and they they call up and and they say the guy calls me back and says isn't my my money good enough for you? <laughs> Welcome, you didn't sell me. And yet, I thought said, it was a fake. You know, you, you thought they were a prankster. Then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people like Todd Rundgren uh, was one of our customers. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> I was um I was wondering how much the Apple II kind of expandability and hardware helped uh, with developing this system, and you know, having like add-ons and extra boards. Not really. We had to go. First of all, we had to get enough storage. 
so we had originally we had just the normal floppies like like a two two drive system you know and it's answering the phone and it's got to have the games it's selling and keep a log of what people are buying so we can print out the the credit card slips the next day and everything so to so that part but then later we got an eight inch drive uh the dual eight inch drives that oh, the eight inch drives use the top and the bottom so so it gave us quite a bit more capacity but even that was wasn't enough and then then we went to a corvus hard drive and i had to take out a bank load i think the drive cost like 20 grand <laughs> for a 20 megabyte hard drive <laughs> we're not talking about about gigabyte terabyte this is yeah it was like you know what happened the, the initial when you bought an apple II, the first uh, it came with 16k. The next 16k cost you 300 bucks. Wow. Okay. The next 16k after that cost about 100 because the price had gone down. More competent, you know, more people were making. And then I think it was like 65 dollars, you know, for for another 16k. You know, it, so over my lifetime, I see memory go way down in price and other things. And and you you could buy a computer each year. You spend 1500 to three grand on a computer, but it's a better computer each year than it was the year before. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's really interesting with that culture as well, because you guys, obviously, a lot of developers had Apple IIs and, and, and you were all kind of using that. And um, uh, uh, in Britain, we had lots of different systems, but um, you ended up working with Cinemaware as well, which is a, a really big name over here as well. Yeah, I had, I had fun. The people that ran it were a little weird. And then and then they got taken over years later. They, they bought them out of bankruptcy, some guys from Brazil or something. They bought them. And then they called up and they said, are you the Ed Magnin that did this? And uh, do you have the source code for this game? Okay, you have to send it to us. We own the company now. I said, I don't know. Whatever. Well, I was wondering as well, because uh, they used Amigas for development, right? So what was... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, that was an interesting thing was that Cinemaware used Amigas. And the advantage was that they made the game look good on the Amiga, and then they ported it down to the other platforms. And by, yeah, by that... the time you got to the Commodore 64, or you got to the the EGA or VGA PC, it didn't look like much of anything. But but you could put the box out with the pictures from the Amiga and say your screenshots may vary, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and put a, what they did was they had a box that had the game in it. And then they put a sticker on it for which version it was, whether it was the Apple II GS or was Apple II or was Commodore. And so they they were able to get away with that that way. Now, when I worked at Microprose, they did the opposite. And I, by the way, I, I was there. I was one of maybe about their eighth or ninth programmer they hired. Wow. I used to eat lunch with Sid Meier every day, you know, did Civilization. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so he did a game and and um, uh, Pirates. And, and so... They brought up this guy from North Carolina, Randall Masteller, and and I went down to Sid's office for a week, and he explained Pirates to us because he just finished it. He didn't want to stop while he was working on it, tell us anything. He was going to get completely done for the for the Commodore sixty four, and that was my job to make an Apple II and Apple II GS version. And Randall Masteller went back to to North Carolina and made a PC version. And uh, Randall had a way of he'd look at the Commodore sixty four code and he had some macros he typed that, that kind of made it easy to like retype it back in and get it the way you need it. I, I took a look at what, what Sid had done and I, I got it going on the, um, on the Apple II. Now it's interesting because the Apple II and the Commodore 64 had the same chip. They had 6502s. Yes. Yeah. But, but that would all similarities stop there. And the Apple II screen was weird. It was, uh, 
it was 40 characters across. And if you put in a, um, a card that made it 80 characters across, it was weird because even the 40 character screen, when you went across the top line and then you went one more character, you were down a third of the screen. And, and, and also, I guess you're also going from like color, color to black and white as well, which is another kind yeah, well, of, uh, Apple, Apple, switch with the palette. Well, Apple had, uh, if the high res had, had it was purple, green, white if they're both on. If you have a if you have a purple pixel and a green pixel next to each other, they turn white. And if you have neither of them, you got black. And and so that that was the high res. The low res had about twelve colors. You know, it's supposed to be sixteen, but it was some of them were duplicates. Some of the grays were duplicates of each other, and just just with a different number. Um, but yeah, so so they they had that kind of thing. But but and then the basic was different. Somebody had published a basic book back in those days. It was like a dictionary of basic commands, and um, and it's like print. And then it would say, okay, on the Commodore sixty four, you type this, and on the Apple II, you type this, <laughs> and on the Radio Shack computer, you type this, and, and, and the Timex Sinclair. So it was like all these things. Oh, we, oh, we, the old days. Uh, you pre- was it load something comma eight comma one? You know, on the Commodore sixty four, you had to type some weird. You couldn't just load and get you stuck a floppy in, and then you had to type this thing to get it go. Oh, by the way, too, in those days, the market in the UK was for tape cassettes. Yes, yes, yeah. And, yeah. and so we made a game on the on a disc, and then we had to load it to a tape cassette, and and we got like uh, let's see, let's see in pounds. I think it was like maybe like ten pounds for the. Um, for the uh, cassette and 15 pounds for the, you know, for the disc or something. So nobody bought the, the nobody bought it. They buy their own tape and maybe copy to a floppy themselves. Yeah. And also piracy on the tapes was a, oh, yeah, a yeah. rife as well. <laughs> yeah. we, we've spent all this extra trouble making the thing. And then when we were done, everybody was buying it wrong. And I, and I said, well, that's, I said, I know how to fix that problem. Change the price and flop. Flip the two prices, people will buy the they'll buy the discs, which are actually easier to make and safer for us. So, um, and I guess you were also going to different sizes then as well, and um, had to kind of w- work with size limitations and storage. Oh yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. And, and okay, then what do you do? The original purpose. I was teasing somebody that did music. I said, I said the original purpose of music and games was to mask a long disc load, like. <laughs> We did a helicopter one. Was it one of one of Sid's? I helped, I helped get it going, but I never did the whole game. I think, but but it was like we were flopping. We could page flip between two screens to make it look like the helicopter, like it, like its blade was moving. And while that was going on, and we were loading. Now, normally you could not load on the Apple II and display something at the same time. They wouldn't let you program and do that. So I had to write in an assembly language to get more basic control of it. And I could I could have a thing that was doing loading, and while it was loading, was flipping the two pages, you know, so it would, so it would keep the animation running. So so there were there were times when we told you, okay, you finish you finish level one, now you got to turn the floppy over, and then wait wait two minutes while it loads, have a thermometer on the screen, you know. Well, um, also there was like some tricks with custom fonts as well. I think um, when yeah, we when we did some custom Apple. fonts. We were able to get. Um, I actually had a. Um, I had a uh, was was uh, the composite monitor, normal one, and on a composite monitor, we could get pixels. We could get like a 
like a three and a half wide pixel. We can get like more characters across the screen and and have them do it a certain way. But then when we got it didn't work right on a uh, on the one that was the build in the MT, not the MTSC, the uh, RGB, RGB, the yeah. RGB monitor, it would not, you know, the font was totally unreadable. So we warned people on the box requires composite monitor, you know? Oh, okay. Oh, there was a bug too in the Apple. There are a lot of bugs in hardware and you see Apple didn't have to fix them. Cause what are they going to give everybody a new computer on uh, the Apple two? If you, made a box that was 320 by 200 and you got over to so zero to 319 if you put a pixel in the column 319 you didn't see it <laughs> so you went over to 318 and put the pixel there and now it was two pixels wide <laughs> if you wanted one pixel line you had to go to 317 uh, and you see I showed Apple that. I called him up and I showed him. Then the thing was, how come you're finding all this stuff? Nobody else is finding. When I was doing stuff on the 2GS, I was finding all these bugs where things would crash. And they said, well, you're the only one finding us. I said, well, what's everybody else doing? Oh, you're the only one using an Apple 2GS. Everybody else is programming on the Mac. But yeah, I was going to say, what were the kind of differences of working on the Mac and then the 2GS? Now, when I did the 2GS, they didn't get me a Mac. So I was doing it on a piece on an Apple 2GS. And I had a hard drive that was like a lunchbox. And I think that was may have been a 20, instead of being 20,000 by then, maybe it was like a, a couple of thousand, you know, to have it like a lunchbox thing. And I had a, I had a multiplex switch that I put on it and I got another Apple two GS. I told the company to buy me a second one because it took 40 minutes to compile the program. Oh, wow. So what happened was I would start it compiling on one side of my desk. I had one on the left side of the desk and one on the right side. I started some compiling on the left and, and have the hard drive working with that one. And then I'd go over to the other computer and look at the code while it was compiling and I'd catch mistakes myself before. And so then I'd abort the compile and switch it to that side. And, and then go. So I was constantly doing that. Uh, and I had a program where it took me a long time to compile the code. I had a friend that did a graphics thing and it took him a long time to compile the graphics. You know, it was all kind of the way you built the thing up and how much you had to compile and all that. But yeah, it was a, it was a paid all that stuff. And then the, um, I think the two GS we tried we tried to use C on it. Uh, oh, in the early games, people you know using a high high level language like C. Um, what happened was they used Basic because Basic is an interpreted language, and people that were hobbyists could buy buy like a, a Timex Sinclair or whatever and type in basic commands. And what happens is with basic, you type in something and you hit a carriage return and then it processes that line. And if it has a line number in front of it, it becomes line 10, let's say, and then you put line 20. If you put line 15, it puts line 15 between 10 and 20 you know, automatically. If you don't put a line number and you say print, quote, hello, end quote, it would just print the word hello on your screen because it's not... It's not deferred processing, then it's doing it immediately. So it's a difference when you're programming, you're writing instructions, and then you say, okay, now run, and it runs it. You know, it's not running at the minute you're doing it. You know, so that people have trouble that aren't programmers understanding that, but it's a it's it's a big distinction. But yeah, so we got uh we were doing that kind of stuff and we were getting stuff that would uh build on there and uh and so C was a, a compiled language instead. And the problem with the early platforms was even though there was a C developed for almost all of them at one time or another, the runtime package for C was so big 
that it wasn't worth using it. It took yeah. up too much space. And when we got to cartridges, when you got to Nintendo and you started getting cartridges and later Atari and everything else, you had to pay to put that that runtime on the cartridge. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so that, that's another problem. Okay, now another thing, the big thing, if, if nobody gets anything else out of this talk today, <laughs> the, 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 the one thing to keep in mind is that programming a cartridge game, like a Game Boy, uh, now Apple was, was you know, on tape and floppies and stuff, you know, but when you go to cartridges, when you go to like Nintendo and you're making a uh, Nintendo 60, uh, uh, the original one, the, uh, what was it, not 64, the, 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 the NES. The, the, the NES, yeah. yeah. When, when you do that, you're, you're making a cartridge. And those, some of those cartridges were $40 games. They had a $20 cartridge in them, you know, and, and uh, some of them may have had a less expensive cartridge. So, so you end up having these, these things that you can't make a mistake. It isn't like you could go and upgrade it five minutes later, you know. And, uh, yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. So, you know, Cinemaware, like their titles were really, well, cinematic, and that was kind of part of it. And, you know, they were quite iconic as well. When you finally did it and, you know, released it, what was the kind of code checking like and, uh, you know, uh, the kind of requirements before release? Well, now I didn't send any. It I didn't do any of the ones that the other guys had bought the company that did the Nintendo and Super Nintendo Cinemaware titles. We we did. Yeah, I'm, I'm on about the Apple ones a bit earlier. Yeah, we did a Mega, yeah. and I did Apple II GS. I don't think we bothered with the Apple II on it, as I recall. And we did PC ones and stuff. Um, and yeah, they, so Cinemaware had their own testing room and everything. Oh, by the way, they didn't have the the Micropros, you'll be interested in this. Micropros had a, a room with UK power supplies. Oh, wow. Yeah. And probably power monitors as well. <laughs> yeah. So they had outlets on the wall with a different color thing. And, and those were 220 um, uh, 50 cycles instead of instead of 110 60 cycles. And by the way, when you go to do a PAL, PAL is the, is the standard for Europe for those things. Um, when you go to do a PAL game, you have less vertical blank. To, yes. A lot of times we have to hide things on a Nintendo in the vertical blank, try to try to do stuff when the, when this like the vertical blank is when you when you used to have a TV. Well, no, nobody's old enough to have a TV that used to scroll and you see those black lines on them. But uh, <laughs> you see an old movie, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah. a, each frame of a movie is kind of like if it gets out of sync and starts scrolling, and you see the black lines going up your screen. You know the old frames lighting up. Well, that black line is the vertical blank, and, and you can send stuff in there. You had a couple, a couple of milliseconds or whatever you can send something, and then you, you had. Um, there's also a horizontal blank over on the side too, before it gets where the carriage returns before it gets back to the left of the screen again. But yeah, so we had to do a lot of stuff in that period. But also, so so the the euro ones were even more uh, fighting to get more st- to, to have the less time to do stuff in the blank there and stuff, but uh, then yeah. having the right frame rate and the right thing. And, and, Oh, and then I think for some reason, the, the pal I think is also in Australia or something, but, but you see that, well, well the UK speaks the same language as we do, but the, the, uh, the, the it wasn't just a language thing. And then uh, Nintendo had, country of origin stuff where you buy a, a an 8-bit cartridge and then you'd want to play it on a like we we buy a japanese game before it was on us you know to see the early versions early release we go to 
go to a Japanese market in, the, in Southern California, we'd buy games <laughs> like before they were officially released in the U.S. and we'd look at them. But we had to have an adapter. And later we found out we just had to bend some pins on the end of the cartridge so that we could uh, plug it into American unit and look at it. <laughs> well, I, I remember um, uh, you said that you did some stuff with Virgin Games as well. I was wondering what it was like when Prince of Persia came out originally. Like, Do you remember that? Because you know, the impact of that game and how popular it was, it's its kind of hard to, to think about nowadays. Yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with it. And um, of course, when we did it, it was all, let's see, the Game Boy was all black and white. Um, so it, it created some challenges. And then you want a ghost and you we don't have enough enough room to put all the thing. And oh, nobody, this is a, a kind of a secret in the industry. Nobody ever wanted to buy larger than the minimum size cartridge. Okay, because if you paid two dollars for the next size cartridge extra, you got to add five dollars to the price tag, and then they felt they priced themselves out of the market. Yeah. So, in other words, is a forty-five, forty-dollar game now a forty-five-dollar game? Well, maybe they're not going to be able to sell them. And also, everybody tried to sell the games the first day. I think it was U.S. Gold, isn't you? That's the British company. They that they were the reps for Microprose, and we'd send over a game to them, and they would they'd sell them all the first day and then they wouldn't want any more. Nobody wants to have a warehouse full of games. They can't sell that are on cartridge. True. <laughs> $20 cartridges. Sitting there. So, so, and if it takes months to order, Muna, we'd order games from, okay. So you make a game in the U S and you have to jump through a U.S. hoop of sending it to Nintendo in Seattle. And when they approve it, then you have to jump through the Japanese hoop that the Japanese companies jump through and get it approved in Japan. Then they manufacture it and they would put it on a slow ship to you unless you pay extra to have it air freighted. And of course you're paying her. That's why they say Christmas in July to, to, to save money. You got to have your game done by July 1st or something. to get it out by Christmas, you know? So w was there a difference when you, so you moved from the Apple one to the game boy and then you had, obviously you're talking about approval. You had that uh, Nintendo seal of approval as well. Was that, yeah, exactly. was that any kind of requirements or, or did they end up sending any games back and you had to change? Well, they stuff? sent a lot of them back to other developers. Okay. So they would fix it. Then. Okay. Right, I yeah. have the perfect record of sending 10 submissions to Nintendo and getting 10 of them approved the first time. That's great. And when I was an employee, they just benefited from my being good. And when I went off and, and became a contractor and came back to them and said, you know, I'll do this. I would add an extra couple of grand in my contract for the first approval. Because it, would, it would save them weeks. There yeah. Was I can imagine that could delay a whole game process and a, a, you know, a game release. Delay. Yeah. Okay. There was a game. Magic Johnson Super Slam Dunk that was on the uh, on the Super Nintendo, and Virgin Games had a contract with Magic Johnson, and the contract it was so long in development that Magic Johnson came out, he got AIDS or HIV or whatever they it was. They didn't know what it was at the time. They thought they, anyway. So so then he was he wasn't cured but he was back playing again <laughs> and, it, and it took that long for the whole approval wow like yeah, yeah. While, while the game was being made and, and everything okay now uh what happened was the game the the basketball game they had chick hearn the voice of the lakers he had a lot of colorful expressions and it takes like five vertical blanks even just to get the expression 
So you're, you're talking about 60 frames a second, so a 12th of a second, to, just to get the phrase loaded in. And everybody says Q speech. By the way, Q isn't even a, an American English word. We use it for you know, com- computers. Yeah. You guys queue up for a bus. You know? yeah, we love queuing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we get in line. We line up for something. But yeah, so, so they, everybody says you queue the speech. You put in order the things you're going to say. Well, the problem was when the play was over, Chick Hearn was talking for two minutes. He's had more stuff to say than he hadn't said yet. Well, yeah, that so that's another thing as well, sound. But um, yeah, so, so what I did was I said you don't want to cue the speech, you want to prioritize the speech. So so we got play by play speech, and what you want to do is you want to say um, certain things are mandatory to say them. The end of the play thing, okay. In football, somebody gets sacked. The quarterback, somebody uh, tackles the guy and he, he doesn't get a chance to pass it. He's, oh, wow, big sack or something like, you know, uh, where did that guy come from? And so you got something you say to end the play. To, uh, but you had something else you were loading and it, you'd say he's back to pass because the quarterback would go back and then he would pick somebody off in the distance to throw it to. So he's back to pass. Well, he gets tackled before you get to say that. So you abort that. You don't bother loading it because it's just going to slow you down. You skip. When I, when I work with the deaf and you're trying to keep up with sign language, every once in a while you have to drop a sentence. Yeah, there's, I, a, there's enough redundancy that maybe maybe the person you're helping will you'll be able to squeeze two thoughts into the next sentence. You know, especially with like size limitations. But yeah, exactly, and the speed limitations, how much you can get in them. So well, yeah, well that, talking of speed as well, like um, you know, yeah. in in Prince of Persia is such a good port on the Game Boy. Um, that whole game was about like realism platforming but also the kind of rotoscope graphics um how did you go about kind of making sure that it ran smoothly and uh it worked well as a platformer with such big sprites as well that that was very tricky but just before we get to that i want i want people to understand that that the when you make a cartridge game you can't make any mistakes yeah, there's no firmware updates that you can do later on. Oh, yeah. I used to go to a store and I'd buy NHL 2K or something, and I drive home, and there's five updates to download <laughs> when I get home. My PC. Uh, you get those kids that buy a console nowadays at Christmas, and then they're sitting there for two hours updating it before they can play on it. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. New versions of, of Xcode, and new versions of, with the DirectX and all that baloney. Yeah, so 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 we go through, but so so the. I was used to getting things right the first time, you know, and not having. So I thought they should give me a, a bonus if I got a game out and it got out on time and Nintendo didn't have to reject it and I'd have to fix it and take three more weeks or a month or whatever. Okay. So then I also thought that if your game lasted six months or a year without having a, an update that you had to do. Now, if you did have an update, if there was a serious problem, maybe you would make another cartridge but you wouldn't tell everybody. But if somebody called up to complain to customer service, then they say, oh, you know what? We do have a newer one. If you'll return yours, we'll get, we'll send you the new one. Ah, oh, smart. Yeah. Yeah. So, so things like that. Somebody beat, I did um, Caesar's Palace on the Game Boy. Yes. Somebody, yes. Somebody beat the math in the casino. Well, and, I, w- I was going to say about that as well. Um, you know, the, uh, you had a, it was, it was a mouse controller, a cursor and um, controlling that on the Game Boy. Uh, it worked really well, actually, with that title. Uh, that must have been quite tough to implement as well. You don't see that that often. I, I know. And having, having that move around and move from thing to thing and see what you're over, and then you click on it. Uh, now, I had fun doing a similar game 
myself. Oh, by the way, I tried to get the Caesars license to do it on the. We did a Magnum Casino game that's on all the, um, you know, on the Android, iOS and stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah, all, all the new platforms. Okay, so so we we did that, and I want to get the Caesars license from it. So I called up the same guys there twenty years later that worked with me. <laughs> Caesars. <laughs> I tried to get the license. He says, Ed, I'm sorry. We're not allowed to sell anything that might encourage people to gamble. Oh, wow. And uh, well, that was on, little, that, that came out on the Game Boy as well, you know, a kid's a kid's system as well, pretty much. And, and I said, well, well, okay, I drive from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. It was about three or four hours, whatever. I, I said, I see a million Caesars ads all the way up there. You know, and they said, yeah. no, you look carefully. We're selling the casino. We're selling Anne Margaret. You know now Celine Dion, and now somebody else, maybe Taylor Swift or something. Yeah, you know, they're selling that. They're not selling gambling. You know, and and so it, it's like we don't want to encourage people. To, we don't want compulsive gamblers. You know, so so we uh, the, that was the thing. So I couldn't get the license for that, but we we did that on there. And then um, I think I, I was in Los Angeles, and uh, oh, it was on the oh the one we did for the DS, uh, the, the Nintendo DS. That one has has the arrow thing for the uh, where you're touching a table and you're picking yeah. the seat you want to stick at the table, and then it has speech recognition. Uh, we I was in Los Angeles for E3, and Sharp uh, Electronics was there, and they'd done the speech recognition for Nintendo, and they wanted me to see it. Well, the guy that was in charge of developer relations wasn't very nice to me ever, so um, I, I said he should change his title to publisher relations because he didn't care about people like me. He cared about the people that bought the cartridges, you know. But um, and we're the ones that would recommend you need a larger cartridge, you know. But they wouldn't, you know. So so anyway, we'd go ahead and um, so I heard this speech recognition it worked beautifully, and so I I said to the two guys in Japanese that were showing it. I, I speak Japanese. I said, I said I love this. Can you make sure I get it? They said, Well, absolutely, make sure. And then the guy from the Tenth America said, By the way, are you following? Is it Steve Okimoto? I said, Are you following? It? He says, I, I don't speak a word of Japanese. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, sure that um, also got used in, um, I think, Nintendogs or, or one of the kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. They had, they had a bunch yeah. of where you could control with voice. Now the trouble was, I had to learn. It, it used an unusual way of doing text-to-speech because, it, I mean, of doing the speech recognition. It used a text-to-speech. You put in text what you wanted them to recognize as speech. Okay. So I had to misspell roulette. <laughs> yeah. R-E-W-L-E-T. To get the different pronunciations. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so that when somebody said that. Now, what we did was uh, we, it was also context-sensitive. Once you chose the game you were at, uh, if you're a blackjack and you say double down, it was listening for that. It wasn't listening for for you to say red 17 or something, you know, or, or whatever. On the, the, it, it knew once you chose the game, then it could load the phrases it should listen to for that for that one. But yeah, it was, do, it was do, a lot of fun and, and doing this kind of stuff and trying to trying to keep things going. And uh, you know, we've we've just been. Oh, the other thing too is, is besides not wanting to make a mistake in a game, they want you to upgrade your games at least once a year. Uh, if, you, if you let it go two or three years, they'll kick you out of the store. Yeah, um, and I think, and, you know, um, kind of going from 8-bit titles as well to handheld titles, do you think that was kind of like a second lease of life for a lot of developers because they use similar techniques, they use similar ideas, but, you know, in a, in a kind of different form? Well, I'll tell you what it did for me. I, I had a history of being like, Two years at one company and two years at the next. You finish one game, 
and you did it in a ridiculous amount of time and you rushed it and you got it ready. And then, and then they said, you know, here's $25, take your wife out to Sizzler, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, never mind. And so, so then you do it maybe another year, you hang around and you can do even a better job the next year. I did Caesar's Palace and Prince of Persia in 14 months back to back. Wow. Yeah. You think it would be worth something. And they took me out to say goodbye when I'd given up my notice and they made me an offer. And I said, Steve, I'm making more than that now. I said, you know, I, I didn't think you were going to make me an offer. He was going to the UK to meet with the, the other people at Virgin, you know. <laughs> it was like, I said, and then, so I, I was saying goodbye to him that week instead of the next week. I, I said, you, you know, I, I'm making more than that now. I said, at least if you're going to make me an offer, make me, you know, get your math right. And yeah, so, I think a lot of programmers got the kind of raw end of the deal. Um, yeah, we, know, we, also, but we love making games. You know, now the one thing we never got to do is, is you look at these book authors signing their books in a in a, in a bookstore. So, well, now there aren't any more bookstores. That kind of recognition, but it, it's fun. But you know, I used to have fun when, when my daughter she she's uh, older now, but when she was in school. I go to her school career fair, and they got the guy from the army and the navy and the and the drugstore, <laughs> everybody that's insurance salesman, and, and I'm, I'm I'm there to talk about games. And uh, oh, this one teacher, he had this chewing gum policy, and throw out your gum and don't, you know, you I hate it because he gets under the chair. He had to give this speech to these kids that weren't even his students. They were just assigned to that room that day so that I could give a talk to him because they asked him to hear about games. And so, so then when he's all done, I said, are you done? And the guy says, yeah. And I said, I said, well, if you like chewing gum, this is a career for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody gives, nobody gives a crap if you chew gum or not. You, know, you just, you'll be happy. And you know, anyway, the, the, so th then it, it backfired on me because my daughter later had him for a physics class. <laughs> he said, I remember you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was also wondering like you know the so there was a lot of when you went onto the game boy advance you know you did quite a lot of titles on there and also the game boy color like how similar was the hardware to the snares like you know developing on the snares and then going on to the game boy advance you know it's funny because the same people kind of were involved i guess so, so you got people like shigeru miyamoto doing driving the art and there was a guy Oh, was it Lupe? I can't remember his last name. Anyway, he, there, there, there was a guy that drove the hardware at Nintendo. And so they're kind of taking the 8-bit the, the uh, NES over to, over to the 16-bit for the Super Nintendo, but then also kind of implementing. And there was, it had vertical blanks, too. It doesn't have a, it doesn't have a video, but, but it had an LCD screen or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it, there were things that that kind of got carried over from in the functions were the, the same. Now, when they went to the N64, then they had bought a chip from uh, Silicon graphics mm -hmm. and it was the chip they used to draw the stuff in Jurassic park and everything. And those, those used to cost like 75 grand for the computer and another 75 grand for the software. And Nintendo was putting one in the, in this in the uh, n64 so i had an emulation i had an emulator for the n64 at first i was using a silicon graphics computer and i got like one frame a second <laughs> okay and when they gave me the hardware to plug in i got 60 frames a second mm. so i said why don't they take whatever's on that board 
and put it in the Silicon graphics for, for everybody. You know, <laughs> it's like, but the, the idea was that Silicon graphics sold them this chip because th there weren't that many people to spend 75,000 for a computer and 75,000 for the, for the software, but they could sell millions of them that Nintendo would pay them so much per chipset to go into the, into a console. It's funny that you, and, and, and that was groundbreaking as well. That was a real yeah, it was, um, yeah. uh, change for Nintendo. Um, and then also, definitely. when they started working with Silicon Graphics, they did things like Donkey Kong Country that were that were a hybrid. They didn't have everything ready to go for the N64, so they made like a, a 3D game with, with the, the 3D. Yeah, was kind of pre-rendered, wasn't it? And, yeah, pre-rendered uh, yeah. on the 2D sprites, yeah. Yeah, That's so... That was the thing. Yeah, so 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 all of that. So yeah, so going to handheld. Now, the other thing that I loved personally about going to handheld was once I was on handheld, I could go to any trade show and walk up to somebody and show them my game. Yeah, yeah. I don't need to have a reserved back room and bring in a special uh, a PlayStation that, that's got the right chip in it so it'll play my game that didn't go through the store you know, and, and all that stuff and have to carry stuff around and have them tell me they were too busy and they made all their appointments. You walk up to somebody on the floor and if he's a gamer, he's going to look at your game. And if it's a good game, he's going to go get his boss. <laughs> and and also it's standardized as well. You didn't have that problem of, you know, composite and RGB and the virtual Oh, yeah, yeah. You go in the too. back room and they got different power than you do and things don't work. Yeah, yeah all of that stuff. It all um, just so. runs off batteries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was like a, a thing. And uh, yeah, I just, it was a whole different thing. But I, like I say, I think a lot of, Nintendo was a nice company and I don't mean to demean them or anything, but, but I think a lot of what they did up to the N64 was making bad hardware look better than it was supposed to. Yeah, they, they definitely pushed it. Yeah. They, they, they got tricks. Now where they got their lunch given to them was when the Sega Genesis came along and they had Sonic spinning, just the idea of having Sonic and having spin, just flashing those sprites really fast, made him look like he was spinning in a circle. And it was like that, everybody thought, oh my God, that the computer in that must be so much faster than the than the other one, you know? Yeah, and, and that kind of triggered the whole console wars, which I guess led them to, you know, the N64 as well. So uh, might have been a, a kind well, of po then, positive Nintendo, uh, uh, competition, you know. Now, Nintendo fought floppy disks or any kind of medium like that for forever, really. Uh, they didn't want to do it because they could control the cartridges. Yeah, uh, yeah. And... and but there were people that made them that made counterfeits of those anyway, you know. And uh, well, there was it, devices like the uh, Disc Doctor, wasn't there? <laughs> and these well, kind of yeah, piracy devices. I, I had one of them was the Revolution or something. There was one. There was one for the um, uh, GS for the, for the Nintendo GS, uh, and it allowed us. It was actually better when I got the cartridge, a prototype from Nintendo. It had this thing where you plugged it in the back where the cartridge went. And it stuck out like 10 inches. It's like you're carrying this thing that sticks way out like a ruler. Yeah. And the one that I had, one of those revolution things, whatever it was, I could just plug it in. It looked like an ordinary cartridge plugged into it. Now, we actually had a purpose for it in that we weren't using it to steal other people's programs. We were using it to put our own on the console. So, But Nintendo stopped them from selling them in the U.S. So then I bought them. I had to buy them from that's near you guys off of the... Is it Gurt? 
Jersey or it's an island. Yes, island. <laughs> yeah, which is a, a kind of island near France. It's <laughs> <Which is>, uh, <laughs> yeah. still in Britain. It's like yeah. one of these things where, where it's a no man's land, like pirates live there or something. <laughs> anyway, I, 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 and, and so then I asked him to send him to me. I didn't get him. I kept waiting like weeks and weeks until I said, okay, you better send him again. And so then they, then they just, sent him. It's an odd place in a uh, computer history jersey as well because uh, I think Jersey and the Isle of Wight they had like uh, Apple Twos as well, so there was a, a kind of maybe something going on there, you know. Yeah, it's kind of funny, but yeah. So we had a legal, a legal purpose really of of using those for our own work, not yeah. for not for copying other people's games. You know, it was like. Well, yeah. Would they also charge quite highly for like development systems as well? Nintendo would they uh, be uh, you know, expensive okay. things? In the early days, maybe a Super Nintendo was like fifteen to thirty grand. Wow. Okay, and you could go buy a Super Nintendo for one hundred and eighty bucks or something. Yeah. So, so then um, there was a company up in Oregon, um, but anyway, they had their own development system. They basically took a cartridge from a from a game. And they put they got into the motherboard hardwired so they get the return line and and their emulator plugged into a production uh, Super Nintendo and the advantage of that was we had a game that crashed on one particular model we had a tester that took a game home and it crashed when he took it home nobody it didn't crash for anybody else and I and so they said oh we'll just chalk it up it's a bad thing don't worry about it. I said no 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 we need to get that guy's Super Nintendo <laughs> we need to get it in there <laughs> so I said I said offer him another Super Nintendo and a couple of games well Trade. um I, I I think you also teach as well don't you you do uh um video game programming uh I did uh, I kind of cut back a little bit recently I'm 73 so my wife retired about five years ago and I'm I, I have more fun making games. I haven't figured out a reason to retire yet, but I, I, I take off more time if I want to go somewhere for a weekend and long weekend or whatever. I don't care. But uh, but I was teaching first for SMU. They moved me from California here to Dallas in 2003. And it was a premium graduate school for game development, the, the Guild Hall at SMU. And I, I did that for, for a short time, like a, nine months. And my boss was an idiot. He he had a degree in fluid mechanics, a PhD, and he was telling me how to do my games and telling me that he was going to get tenure for all the people that taught there. And then later, so he's giving somebody a tour and he says, oh, no, we're never going to get tenure for these people because the field changes too rapidly or something like that. But anyway, it was like he just told me a week ago the, the opposite, you know, and then, so yeah. anyway, I didn't have much use for him. But he started telling me how to teach my classes. And that's that's a good I was, I was I was kind of wondering what what tips do you give um, like developers and stuff that they can you know take some tips from the early days and kind of apply them to uh, okay. ga- game creation nowadays. I I don't know. You need to understand the hardware really well, and you know I had some basics when I was teaching students to to do stuff. I'd make them learn binary and hex. I don't care about octal, but because a lot of your hex dumps and stuff, you'd look at a game and it would be in hex. You know from zero to nine and a to a to f for the digits you know and and if you don't know enough about hex if you see 55 say you're expecting 55 and you see aa you don't know that that's double 
that AA is like 10-10 instead of 5-5, you know. <laughs> so so the, kind of teaching that, um, you know, deep understanding of a system and uh, yeah, you know, low-level stuff, you know. Yeah, and then also how to speed up things and how to optimize, um, how to avoid doing things more than once, how to, how to make a random number generator on a platform that doesn't have one. And sometimes you can hook into something like the vertical blank where you've got something counting and you need a certain number of random things to happen before before you do the first thing in a game. Otherwise, every game would start the exact same way. If it, if it doesn't have any human interaction and you just plug the cartridge in and it doesn't have a good random number routine in it or something, it'll do the same move as the first move every time. But on the way into a game, if you're making a guy go through a menu and choose something, while he's doing that, you're seeding the number, you're messing up the number generator and stuff, and you're able to to do it. Because it's kind of like one way to make it random is to be blindfolded and, have, and grab a spinning wheel. You know, yeah. uh, you have the wheel spinning and you grab it on a, and wherever you grab, but you see, you can't see where it is. You see, so something like the random number generator is running and uh, on the, um, not just the, vertical blank, the horizontal blank is running off in the side that where it is, the horizontal position of where it is on a scan line is, is a, there's a number you can read. And so that if you read that at, at whatever time you need to, it's going to give you something like a random number, you know, like a number that you pick quickly, you know? Uh, so anyway, that, there's all those kinds of tricks, you know, and well, also you've you've kind of designed some uh, games yourself as well, and you've released them on a uh, you know mo- modern platforms and uh, stuff like the Android Store and 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 Google as well. And, and our listeners can check them out at edmagnin.com as well. Um, can you tell us about some of these titles and uh, some sure. of the kind of uh, differences that you've applied to these games? Well, you know, I used to do things natively. So the Apple came out with stuff and they had their own stuff. And then later they had Swift was their own programming language. They had all these other things, which are great. But I would do a game natively um, on a Mac for the Apple. And then I'd have a friend that would do it for the uh, for the Android. And I watched what he was doing and he went into Unity, which is a game engine, and he would put my, he'd look at what I was doing and put that in there. <laughs> he had the advantage of looking at the source code too. You know, he can look at that and see what I was doing and why I was doing it. So, so then once it, once he got it into there, then we could release it later on the PC or on other platforms. If kind we of, kind of cross uh, platform. So uh, now we do everything yeah. in Unity the first time. And then we, um, so on, we think we maybe a month and a half to make a good game. And then we, uh, they're kind of casual games, but, but we go and we, we put it on, on Monday and Monday and Tuesday, we put it on the, on the handhelds on the phone and the Android. Okay. And then on Wednesday, maybe we put on the Apple TV. And then on Thursday, we're trying to get on the PC and the Xbox. And, uh, and so then we, so we do like a soft release, each of the platforms as we do them. We just kind of send it off to the store. We don't make a big deal about it. But anybody that sees it's there can buy it. And then and then we put out a press release on the after we've got the the last one done and, and try to get it out there. So uh, and and I love that because you, you're kind of you, you're still in development, but you're also kind of just doing it for fun and you're you're doing it on a on a new platform and seeing kind of uh, you know what people take to. Yeah, and I don't get to pro I don't get to program as much as I used to, but I get to help with the building. So I, I'm I'm usually building the the Apple, um, the the iOS, the Apple TV, and and now we can do Mac because 
if you've got the new Mac the uh, that has M1 or M2 chip, uh, it'll play the iPad version of the game on your Mac. Yeah, I'm running on an M1 at the moment. Absolutely yeah. love that chipset. Yeah, yeah, and so, but, but you see the the controls are all different. See, the iPad version was depending on you touching the screen, you know, yeah. leaning the screen, you know, and but then we get over to the to the to the Mac, and you're not going to, you know, you you're not going to lift your you tilt your your Mac to play the game. So so we we're using mouse and keyboard and stuff and, and other things. So yeah, and, and so it, it it's kind of fun. You figure out the things. You try to figure out what's going to see. Now we get to do it because it's like indie publishing. We're dealing directly with the stores ourselves. There's no middleman. Uh, if we do well, we get a percentage. If we if we guess wrong and it's something that nobody understood or whatever, but we did some things that I'm really proud of, and, uh, and some of them were kind of funny. We had one. I don't even know. But I think it's available on one or two platforms. It got it got called, we, we had one called Call in Sick. And I, I went to a movie with my wife, and I came out, and this guy's calling me a, a fellow podcaster. <laughs> he says, he says oh my God, I said, I just played this thing. I need some more information. I want to talk about it. <laughs> it's like, so what it does is it has some background tracks. And and it was like, okay, uh, you call up and you say, hey, I'm sorry. I'm stuck in traffic. And it's got a horn, a horn honking. And everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's such a smart idea. It's a, a kind, of, kind of, of great saying, excuse to get out of work. <laughs> it's not like you're in the emergency room and everything. So we did this and we put it on, on all the platforms that we could. And then um, I wanted to do it. And I tried to get, you know, with all this thing, like you're setting up a call like this and getting the, the sound to sound right and patching it into this and patching it. So, so I, I tried to do it where I was recording the sound and mixing it with my voice live, and that didn't work. I could not get the, the various platforms to do that very well. But then I remembered all sound is numbers. Okay, it's all it's all digital numbers. <laughs> it's all it's all sampled. Everything in your computer has been sampled. Yeah. So they're numbers. So if you have a tape of the background sound of the traffic and I have a tape of you and I have a record you talking, I can go through at the same speed and add the numbers together and then make sure they didn't get so loud that they distort it. I absolutely love this. Like I'm just looking at it at the moment. <laughs> it's such a fun idea. Like um uh, there's a the hospital one and it's like I'm a, I'm in an emergency room waiting to see the doctor. I can't see how long I've been here. I will try and call again. You know, that's such a smart idea. Well, really funny and quirky. Well, out of some of the stores because it was deceptive. Okay, yeah. And of course it's deceptive. It's a magic trick. I mean, uh, try to explain that to these guys. They got their own rules. And then you've been through a time where people, you know, were maybe deceiving people or doing something. I don't know, whatever it was. So that one had to go. The other one I, I wanted to do was when the movie Lucy came out. Yeah. Remember how smarter brain was and kept growing, growing, growing speed. Okay. So I talked to somebody. I said, I want to, have you done this thing for, for Luke, the, the thing we wanted to do, like brain meter? And he said, Oh, you still want that? And I got mad at the guy. And um, so I said, No, no. I, I had this other guy I was recommending he hire, and I ended up hiring the guy myself and, and uh, put him on that project. And what we did was we hold the iPhone up to your, up to your forehead. And we measure your brain. Let's see. Then I hold it up to my forehead, and it shows that I'm like twice as twice as smart as you are. <laughs> I love that. I love that kind what of. What is, it's where you put your finger when you're doing it. Oh, the other one was too was my choice or your choice. 
and you spin the wheel and it's like like you like you and your wife can't agree what movie to go to or something you say okay whatever let's spin okay and, and you always win because if your thumbs on if you're holding your thumb on one side of the you wheel, can kind of rig it like it, it goes yeah. around a random <laughs> It goes around a random part time at the end, but stops on the side you want it to stop on. So, oh, that's, well, that's absolutely amazing. That, that was, it was deceptive too. But you know, there's, there's like a whole category there that should we're missing out on things like yeah. magic tricks and stuff. That, you know, I just love magic. When I was yeah, I, I I I love that, and I think that's a that's a kind of great use of stuff. And well, how do you how do you get that across? They come up with more ways every time we fill out a form to put something in the app store. Does it offend the? the republic of korea well i don't know yeah. is- I, I think it's on google play still but i'm sure apple are a bit a bit strict with that i do remember there was one that i used to love which was um uh you download more ram for your phone <laughs> that was one it's like that's not gonna work but <laughs> yeah all these yeah these things are funny you know that they they're trying to protect everybody from everything and uh um yeah, yeah I, I don't know it's uh, I would recommend if anybody's interested, they should just get. Um, first of all, if you got people that are hobbyists or trying to make their own games, yeah, go ahead and keep doing that. Um, you get some books, do it on your own. You can get Unity is free if you haven't made enough money on it yet. So uh, you can, you can. Uh, they have certain you can read the requirements online, uh, and and you can use Unity to make the game. Uh, you can move it to different platforms fairly easily. Uh, if you're going to do an iPhone one, you need a Mac to build it on. If you're going to do a, a, a Windows one, you need a PC. The Android you can use either, um, I think, although we usually do it on the PC. But, uh, yeah, so you, you build the thing, and then when you get it in Unity, when it's time to put it on a different platform, you change the player settings. And now it's it's in some ways like a different game. Because one of them had a mouse, the other one doesn't. One of them has a tug. One of them has accelerometer, the other one doesn't. By the way, they and then they don't tell you stuff. They the Apple TV had one controller, and then now it has a different control with a round thing on the top, the touch area on it. Instead of being a postage stamp one, it's it's now kind of a round one up there, and it no longer has an accelerometer. So we base some of our games on using it like a control, kind of like the uh, controller they had for the Wii. You know where you're. You're leaning it one way or the other. You know, yeah, so. yeah. But, but people don't like that anyway. I think, I think, the, and also the phone. We used to do the driving games with the iPhone where you held the accelerometer. And now I think they'd rather have an invisible, like a, like a thumb uh, D-pad on the screen, you know, like, so. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, that instead, you know, it's like, but, but yeah, having a system where you can get it onto different platforms, you can visualize it, you know, and it has to be. It has to be fun. It has to be something you make a difference at. You know, the, 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 a lot of people want to make a game. Few, very few people have the patience to go all the way through it. You know, that that's that's part of it. Also, working at home, uh, I've worked at home off and on during my career, and I got in fights with companies where they wouldn't let me work at home, and the next company did, and then the one after that made you come in. And, but um, I've always done better work on my own. Uh, and the guy I work with down in Houston, uh, he's like, four or five hours away by car. We do everything on Skype. Uh, maybe we used to get together once a year in San Francisco, but I'm not sure when any of us think San Francisco is that safe anymore. But um, yeah, you know, we, we go to game game conferences and things like that, but it was like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, getting things that are fun, the people that make a, make a difference. Sometimes you get feedback from people. Well, I got more feedback in the old days when I had that online business because people knew it was me, you know, 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, now, now it's just a kind of app. Was trying to sell them. So you got a whole other problem, and everybody wants to help you sell your games. And I don't know, when I talk to them, they don't know any more about it than I do. And I don't know very much, you know, and I've been doing So I've tried an experiment. I sent out, if you go to um, Magnet Games on Twitter, you'll see um, we're promoting the um, uh, Warp Tunnel uh, challenge. If you're racing, you're racing in one of these tunnels that, that twists and you're trying to get through the thing without hitting the obstacles. And then you go through one level and then you go through the next level, the next level and it keeps and randomly changes and you change vehicles and stuff. But we, uh, it's kind of like the analogy I was, I, Willie was the one that kind of designed it. And I said, I said, Oh, it's kind of like a force scroll, you know, that only you're forcing, we're forcing us to move forward in 3d. You don't get the option of stopping, you know? Yeah. You, you go to the right or left to avoid obstacles, but you, you're still going with the same forward speed. So so that that was kind of fun. So we're trying this experiment. We put it in um, in Twitter, and I haven't used them for a while. And then I saw people picking on Elon Musk and everything. I thought, okay, fine. I'll, uh, <laughs> so I put it on our site, and I, I sent it out. and got to our 20,000 people that follow us. And then, then what you do is <laughs> then you pay them to promote it. And then one day they sent it to another 30,000 people, you know, or, yeah, yeah, it's a, a definitely a, a change from the days when you were doing it uh, on on the old modems and kind of on the on the old phone lines. And um, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to end the interview here because we're running out of the time, Ed. But um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, oh, same here. I'm flattered. You know, in '73, I did retro games before people knew they were retro. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, were they, were, retro games. They, they were cutting edge back then. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, thanks so much, Ed. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it.